Well, hi, my name's Josh. I'm a pastor here, and I get to preach this uh, pretty dark passage here. Uh, before we get into the dark stuff here, I want to just uh, show a picture. It's uh, maybe be a little blurry. It's from a phone, but we just had our first ever men's retreat. Look at those handsome guys right there. Um, and there's a ton of highlights, mostly athletic greatness in that group is what I could highlight uh, from kind of the mid-30s age range, especially. Uh, uh, but I asked a question, kind of, how would you describe discipleship in your life? And the interesting answer that um, a lot of the guys gave was they highlighted a woman, a mom, a grandma. Um, so even as we went off to a men's retreat, we were just reminded of the church is the men and women of God and the faithfulness of women, faithfulness of men. And it was just a sweet reminder that uh, what we're doing matters. And moms in the room, wives in the room, ladies in the room, what you're doing matters. Like your, your sons are listening, even though they seem like they're not. So I just want to encourage you women, like, keep being faithful. That group is a testament to faithful women that have gone before us. And this church is just another picture of faithfulness we want to be years and years from now. So, uh, and Cody Lingelbach, so sad. He runs our men's ministry, but he got sick and uh, he couldn't come. So say a prayer for Cody because that happened because of him and we got to enjoy all the fruit of his labor and he didn't get to go. So kind of sad, but uh, say a prayer for Mr. Lingelbach. He's the guy always in a tank top hugging you. So uh, (laughs) he's very easy to spot. So with that, let's get into this passage, very dark passage about Kind of the, one of the most famous stories ever told. It's not a story, fictional, it's actually happened. But the betrayal of G- Jesus. Judas. Nobody names their kid Judas. Why? Because of this story. You name like the cat, you hate Judas perhaps. But nobody uses the name Judas. Because Judas is the one who betrayed Jesus. This is about the betrayal of the person some of us in this room love more than anything in the world. Jesus Christ. And it's in this moment we get to zero in on when he was betrayed. And how do we want to come at this passage? We could kind of talk about betrayal in our own life. Like some of you, you know, are divorced or on the verge of divorce and you have a sense of betrayal. Like we could go to this text and try to learn, well, how do we walk through personal betrayal? We could kind of take it as a warning, like what in us is Judas-like? and about to betray and kind of do a test on ourselves. We could do that. I, I kind of want to just look at, kind of zoom out. And as followers of Jesus, what do we see? What sort of uh, realities are at play in this text? To be faithful to following Jesus is going to involve a lot of different kind of conflicting realities that we see in this passage in particular. So that's my big idea. Is here's what we're going to look at. Followers of Jesus are always living in these three different realities that I see in this text. And by reality, I mean sort of setting. Like, we're in this setting, and we're in this, you zoom in, you see a different setting. We are always living in these three sort of conflicting realities of followers of Jesus. So that's what I want to do, is just walk through this passage and kind of talk about what do we see and what do we learn from that. So with that, I want to pray and ask God to kind of just be very present in this moment. So let's pray together. Jesus, our prayer is simple. Take your word. uh, Reveal it to us. Make the teaching clear. Got it by your spirit. Land this where it needs to land in our hearts and our minds, in our situations, in our circumstances, in our pain, in our struggles, in our highs and our lows. God, use this word now in this moment for us, your people. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. So here's what I want to do. Just kind of walk through the passage uh, Joe just read, just to kind of give us a picture. Because this is like, we got the famous painting, The Last Supper. Uh, we have images of what this might look like. This is The Last Supper. This is the, the communion moment Jesus has with his disciples, according to John here. And I just want to walk through and just kind of, just make sure we're, we're aware of the situation. So let's walk through this here. Verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. What was after saying what? He just washed the disciples' feet. Aaron Daly preached last week, did a great job. After that moment, Jesus is troubled. And he testifies, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Just let that moment sit. Like the guy we love just washed our feet, this crazy moment. One of you will betray me. Verse 22, the disciples looked at one another. Kind of looking around. If we were a more charismatic church, I'd have you look around like, testify to your name, but we're not, so. <laughs> Is it you? Is it me? Is it? Uncertain of who he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. Let's pause right there. Just The way most people think this went out is like a U-shaped sort of. The only time I've experienced something like this is my Somalian friends. They had me over. They have a rug on the ground, and you kind of sit on the floor, and you eat. And they think this is kind of what it was like in a U-shape. You're kind of sitting on your left side, leaning, eating with your right hand. And Jesus is laying there, and his disciples are kind of around him. So the one whom Jesus loved is next to him, laying like close enough to kind of be snuggling with him. So Simon Peter, the guy who always speaks first and confidently, motioned to that guy. To ask of whom Jesus was speaking. So that disciple, the guy laying right next to Jesus, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, kind of probably just to him. It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, a lot of churches do communion that way. We might at some point, you know, dip the bread in the wine. He gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot who was probably sitting on the other side of Jesus. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to Satan now, who has entered the scene, what you are going to do, do quickly. Like just crazy. And all the disciples are totally unaware. We see in verse 28. Now no one at the table knew why Jesus just said this to Judas. Some thought that because Judas Judas was the keeper of the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast. That would be the Feast of Unleavened Bread coming up. Or that he should give something to the poor. It's a Passover. It's, you know, a festival. Maybe he's telling them to give the poor. They're just confused. Verse 30. So after receiving the morsel of bread, that would be Judas, he immediately went out. And then John, the perfect storyteller, reminds us of the setting. And it was night. And that's the first reality we live in as Christians, is we live in the night. Like we live in the dark still. We live in times where stuff like this still happens. Betrayal is very real and evident. Even as we look at the Gospel of John, he's always contrasting light, dark, light, dark, light, dark, light, dark. But dark is a very real reality. So much so that darkness is almost like its own character as he's telling this story. It's like this ominous thing that's always there. Even though in the beginning he says, light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
but the dark is still here. The dark does not win. The dark has not overcome it, but the dark is still here. And John says, and it was night. We still live in the dark. Like our family, we've had just crazy tragedy. We just moved from Chandler to be a part of this church. And my second son's best friend from his old school, they just had a drowning at their house. We're like, what the? Just the same age as our youngest. It's like, we're like making sense of that. We're going to go to that funeral this weekend. And then I'm reading the news. And I see, that seems like that's close to our little house. And I think that, that last name rings a bell. And sure enough, a kid that we used to have at our house all the time, his older brother died of a fentanyl overdose. And the news is saying the mom's probably involved. It's like, what? And then you zoom out, you talk about Haiti. Talk about, why? Because it's still, talk about Afghanistan. I'm just trying to make sense of Afghanistan because I'm not a Middle East expert like 99.9% of people online seem to be. But, <laughs> but I found out this missionary guy who was just trying to give, he says this, the Taliban has a hit list of known Christians they're targeting to pursue and kill. People are fleeing into the mountains looking for asylum. They are fully reliant on God, though, and God is the one who will protect them. The Taliban are going door-to-door taking women and children. The people must mark their house with an X if they have a girl over 12 years old so the Taliban can take them. If they find a young girl and the house was not marked, they'll execute the entire family. If a married woman 25 years or older has been found, the Taliban promptly kill her husband and do whatever they want to her and probably sell her as a sex slave. And then husbands and fathers are giving their wives and daughters guns and telling them, if Taliban come, you choose to kill them or yourselves. Like, this is happening as I'm preaching. Why? Because it's night. The light has come and the darkness has not overcome it, but the darkness is still here. And Jesus wants us to know that and sit in that and not avoid that reality. It's still Night. What do we even see in this passage? Like, it's still night. Even, I just want you to look at the word Jesus used. Go to verse 21. On how Jesus talks about this moment of his betrayal. Verse 21, he, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and he testified. That's a strong word. Testify. There's three sort of words that are used for teaching throughout the New Testament. One is like the preaching, proclaiming the gospel. That's one. The other one is sort of teaching, did a K, like you're connecting dots. It's like you're teaching how to take this doctrine and apply it to your life. And then the other one is witnessing. It's where we get the root word martyr. Jesus, martyr, witnessed. He wants people to know, like, the darkness is here. My betrayal is here. He's not just kind of flippantly saying, and I'll be betrayed. It's a teaching moment. One of you will betray me. Why? Because it's still night. Just even in this passage, what happens at night? The first thing we see is the Son of God is betrayed. And like if you're a religious person, you've been around faith for any, like stories start to lose their edge. But the perfect one, the holy creator of the universe, who is nothing but good, perfect, lovely, beautiful, Everything that we are not, he is perfect, comes down to earth. And this is year three of his hanging out with these guys. And he's invested and he's been perfect and loving and good and kind and patient with these guys. 
and he's betrayed. That's the world we live in, where God can be betrayed by us. Verse 27, what else do I see in this? Satan still has power. Like it, This is just, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus tells Satan, what you're going to do, do quickly. Jesus is in control. Satan's on a leash, but he's still got a strong bite. Why? Because we live in the night. Like we just, sir, I'm generally optimistic, so I don't live in the, the night very well. And some of you are like, there's never sunshine. You know, you're kind of, but like Christians have to like be aware, like night is still a very strong reality. It's still a very dark place we live in. And the other thing I take from, what does it mean that we live in the night? This was kind of inadvertently taught to me, I think, by the Spirit. But the motives are never going to be totally clear as long as we still live in the dark. Like Judas, it is fascinating, but nobody expects that it's him. More than that, fast forward to now, as people try to make sense of this, this is like one of the key questions people are trying to answer that there is no answer to. What was the motive of Judas? Why did it take 30 pieces of silver for him to betray the Messiah? Why did he do it? There's even false gospels, the gospel of Judas, Gnostic gospels. It's sort of this crazy way people have come in and tried to rewrite the story in just goofy, wrong, and sinful, evil ways. And the gospel of Judas says Judas did it because Jesus asked him to, to kind of release him, to reach his fullest potential. Why did Judas betray? Specifically, like, let's just bring it down to us. Like, why in your life has stuff happened? Why have you been betrayed? Why did he treat you like that? Why did she do that to you? As long as we live in the night, we're never going to be able to fully shine the light on why any of us do anything. And that sucks. Because we want to have answers. We, we especially like to be in control. If we know like, how it all works, like Aaron was talking about last week, then we feel like a sense of... But we live in a very vulnerable place where we don't really know ever what's going on. Good motives or bad motives. Why? We don't know. Because the world is dark. I think Jesus models here, though, how should we respond to being followers of Jesus who actually live in the night? A dark world where everything I listed, everything in your life that's dark and hard right now is going on. How do we? I think Jesus shows us, verse 21, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. We should be troubled in our spirit. We should be emotional about a world that is just dark and evil and wicked. We should feel stuff. And some of us feel, have a ton of emotions. Some of us have like two emotions. But we should feel. And we should see the darkness. I should see friends going through pain and suffering. I should feel. Jesus was troubled in spirit. And he knows exactly how the whole story goes. He put every comma and period and exclamation point in the story. He's in this moment, in this story that he wrote. And he is troubled. Why? Because the world is dark. The biblical word is lament. We need to lament. A lot, because there's a lot to lament. Some of you maybe just need to hear in this passage, like, I need to lament more. I need to see stuff and not try to avoid it, try to erase all the pain I'm feeling, but like sit in that emotional troubling of spirit that Jesus here models as perfectly 
good and fine way to be a human is to be troubled in spirit because we live in the dark. At this men's retreat, one of the, we were praying over one guy, and I remember one guy's prayer was something along the lines of, God, you're a real God. You want us to be real. You want men who can go and yell at you because of what we see in our lives and what's around us. Amen. We are real. God is real. He wants our real emotions. Jesus was troubled in spirit, and he knew exactly what was happening. He had Satan on a leash. He knew what Judas was going to do, and he's still troubled. Why? Because it's dark. But we don't just sit in the dark. What's the next setting? As we, it was night, but as a, you're a director in this scene, what's the next scene? It's also happening around a table. So the next thing we see is Christians also live in this reality where we sit at the table in community with a bunch, a ragamuffin bunch of people that don't have much figured out, but we're trying to figure this out. We sit at the table. Where do I see that? Verse 23. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table. So there is darkness. There is evil. This world has Satan, a real evil power that is doing stuff right now. But then as we zoom in, we are also the followers of Jesus who have been invited to his table. And as I walk through this passage, and I, what do I learn from this? Here's the first thing. All types of disciples are invited by his grace. Twelve disciples. Eleven of them actually make it. One of them bows out. This guy that we see in this passage. We got Peter, James, John, Andrew, Nathaniel, James, Jude, Matthew, Philip, Simon the Zealot, Thomas. Why were they picked? Because Jesus picked them. What was so great about them? Jesus picked them. They were mostly uneducated, mostly fishermen, mostly kind of from swaths. We had Simon the Zealot who was trying to burn Rome down. They were the insurrectionists. Let's take this thing to the ground. You got Matthew, the tax collector, who's kind of in cahoots with the Roman government. And Jesus says, I think you two would be, you two sit right next to each other. (laughs) And then we got Jude, Judas, the betrayer. I would not have picked Judas if I knew what Jesus knows. None of us would. Like we got to sit in this. Jesus is just fascinating how he does life. It's uniquely Jesus-like when we watch him interact. As I look at this and I think about Judas, the question is, do you see yourself in Judas at all? Like, which one of these disciples is me? I'm Peter. I speak too quickly. I'm John. I'm the one Jesus really loves. I'm... <laughs> but I also think we need to kind of do some, what about me? What inside me is Judas-like or kind of Judas tendencies? Like there's a song by King's Kaleidoscope. Judas sold you for 30. I would have done it for less. Like Judas, 25, no. 26, no. 28, no. 29, no. 30, that's the one that would do the trick. And this is a church that is bringing in younger folks just... Like, there's stuff in your heart that is taking you in a Judas-like direction. Like at this men's retreat, we talked about Philippians 3, where Paul says, I count all things as loss. It doesn't matter. I'll throw everything away for this, just to know Jesus. And know him in his full. I would get rid of all that. That is a bold statement that I can't sign off on. Nobody can. Judas, it was 30. I count it would take about 30 for me to turn. 
And this isn't like a, I believe in a big sovereign God, but I also think we got to do heart work more than we do. Like, what about me is not going to betray maybe to the sense of where I abandon the faith, but like, I'm willing to punt on Jesus for a vacation home. An extra drink here and there. Like, do some work. Where is Judas in me? Here's the other thing I see there. Even the enemies. That being said, Judas is at the table. Even the enemies of God are fed. Jesus feeds Judas here. Dips. Feed. I've never fed another grown man food. <laughs> I would do it like if my dad, he gets to the point where I have to take care of him, I would do it for him and my kids. That's it. Judas does it to the man that's going to send him to the cross. And feeding another person in your home this time is the ultimate sign of hospitality and friendship. And Jesus feeds his enemy. Proverbs says this, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. You know why Proverbs says that? Because that's what God's like. You know why Proverbs is written? Because we're not like God, so we need to read stuff to remind us what God's like. He's the guy who feeds his enemy. I mean, this passage has been insane to walk through. He feeds his enemy. Just, who does that? Jesus does that. Here's the next thing I see. Jesus treats us far better than we deserve. Like, here's what I had to wrestle with. None of the disciples assume it's Judas. Which means Judas was treated exactly the same as all 12. Like I used to coach with, uh, some of you guys know Ricardo Stewart. He used to be a pastor at Tempe. Very intense guy. Loves to win more than anything except for maybe Jesus. And we're coaching and there's this one kid he's always, (laughs) he would just rail this kid all the time. And my son Elijah was like, Dad, is, and Ricardo's black, this kid's white. He's like, is did Ricardo adopt it? Is that his son? I'm like, no, he's just like, he really wants to win. And that kid is standing in his way of winning. Like, it is clear. <laughs> he's the problem. Like my son, who's not that perceptive with kind of emotional, like nuance and stuff. He's like, there's something going on here. And that does not happen once with Judas. Three years hanging out. A men's retreat that lasts three years. You would know. Who annoys me (laughs) by day three? (laughs) Two possible reasons. The disciples aren't smart enough, which is probably playing into it. Or Jesus treated Judas with the same level of love and kindness that all the other 11 got. That's the God we serve. Jesus loves them. All of them. His enemy, his betrayer, he feeds because that's what Jesus is like. Here's the other thing, the last thing I see just at the, as I zoom into this table moment. We won't ever really know who is for Jesus or who isn't for Jesus. Jesus chose the 12, one betrayed. We've got the church. This is your church. We move on, we go to another church. The church, we're never going to really know in our human selves. I think, I don't. I think Clayton's Judas-like. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, I, I think it's Clayton in this room. <laughs> Jesus even gave a parable to kind of talk about this reality, about in gatherings of people 
following Jesus, the disciples, the committed ones, he says this about, here's how you should make sense of the Judas character. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in the field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. That would be Satan. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. So Jesus is creating disciples and Satan is creating Judas-like people and they're growing up in the same field. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have so many weeds? He said, an enemy has done this. So the servant said, here's what we want to do. Then do you want us to go out and gather them? Do you want me to be the guy sniffing out who's not fully committed? Searching through attendance records and who's really in? Nope. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, and gather the wheat into my barn. Translation, Judas is not a one-off. And like, you're like, is it me? Is it me? You're like the disciples, is it me, Jesus? Jesus says, we're not going to know till the end when the harvest comes, who was his and who were not his. And that's part of the reality of being at his table. It's not our job to sniff out the Judas. It's our job to just look and gaze upon Jesus. Period. That's our role at the table. But then finally, there's a third setting here. I don't, want, don't put it on the screen yet. But as I study the Bible, I print it out. I've told you this. I kind of have color codes. Blue is sort of my, what's the setting involved here? Oh, we're in Galilee. Or, oh, we're here. Or, oh, we're at the gate. Or there's three settings involved here. We got the night. John says he wants you to know it's night. And then he zooms in at uh, the apostle that Jesus loved, John. He says, and he's at a table. They reclined at a table. And then he sneaks in this beautiful little thing at the end of verse 23. They're at a table. And then he kind of has this zoom-in moment. And also, the one whom Jesus loved was at Jesus' side. We, as followers of Jesus, also get to lay at his side. Like, just picture the intimacy there. So much so that a lot of ink has been spilled on the potential homosexuality of this moment. It's that intimate. John, laying on Jesus at his side. It's night. The worst betrayal ever to happen in human history is happening, unfolding right in this moment. And also in this very moment, you got John just laying on Jesus' side. That's a beautiful picture of the Christian life. It's dark. There's a lot going on. I can't make sense at all. But I kind of want to be like this guy who's just laying at his side. What happens at his side? Here's what, as I walk through this and try to make sense of This is the first time John is actually introduced into this story. The author has taken 13 chapters to insert himself into the story. That's fascinating. That's not how we work. As soon as I can, let me talk about me. Oh, you weren't asking about me? Let me tell you about me. And like we love, it's so refreshing to be around people who insert themselves Kind of in the most humble, unseen way. Like, oh, you do that? Oh, yeah, I'm, I kind of dabble. And John's like 13 chapters in, and he slides himself into the story here. Like, what do we learn? A few things I learned from that is the story doesn't start with John. It's about Jesus 
And he's kind of with his author's penship showing us that. But then also I think he's showing like we can all be invited into the story to be written into the story that God is writing. It's not a closed book. The Bible is closed, but the story of the gospel going out and people being invited in by grace, by Jesus is happening all the time. And we can all be written in at whatever chapter it is. And John slides in here, the one whom Jesus loved. So beautiful. More than that, what do we see here? Look at what the picture is here. Verse 23. At Jesus' side. The literal translation in the Greek is not anything that any of us would ever use. It's in his bosom. John is in the bosom, in the lap of Jesus. This happens twice in this gospel. The first time is in John chapter 1, verse 18. It's how Jesus describes his relationship to the Father. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. Translation, who is at his father's bosom. And John writes himself into the story, I am the one at the bosom of Jesus. Like how much more intimate can you get with two people? This is the most intimate language they can use. And John says, I am in his bosom. Like the closer I can get, my favorite thing in the world. This might be an overstatement, but it's top three. I do most of my reading and kind of studying laying on the couch flat. And I just love my, I'm in there early. My kids wake up and they climb on my back and just lay. And this morning, I hadn't seen them in two days because I'm out dominating in hoops with the men of this church. <laughs> Jude wakes up first, 620, comes, gets on my back. Dad, I made French toast. Oh. Jude goes in the room. Ozzy comes out. Dad, I rode my bike. Lays on my back. Elijah sleeps in. He's starting to become a teenager, so he takes forever, but... Like, that's the picture here. The world is dark. Betrayal is happening. Satan is in the room. Can you think of a more scary thing than, hey, just who, who was at your church this morning? Ah, you know, Jack was there. and there was, I saw Chandler. He was, you know, up there. And then Satan was, you know, over there. <laughs> and how'd you feel? Well, I was fine. Why? Because I, I was in his bosom. I didn't even notice it. I was in his side. Elijah, what do you think of the world and everything that's going on? I'm just laying on my dad's back. That's the picture we get of what it means to be in a close, intimate relationship with Jesus. We get to come into his bosom, get in him. As close as you can think a human relation can be, you have that with Jesus and then some. You are either in Adam, according to the Bible, or in Christ. If you're in Christ, this is the picture John wants you to have. Laying at the side of Jesus. He wants you to know Jesus is in complete control of the situation. Satan is on the leash while Jesus lays there with John snuggling up to him. What a beautiful picture. It's dark. Betrayal's everywhere. But we get to lay on the side of Jesus. And more than that, what do I see with John as he writes himself into the story for the first time? Here's the last thing I see. How does John describe himself? Verse 23, the very beginning. This is the guy laying on Jesus, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. If you're a Western person, which is everyone in the room, probably, the way you kind of identify yourself is what you've done. Even me, hey, I'm Josh, I'm a pastor. 
got four kids, you know, it's kind of the achievement. That's just kind of default how our culture works. Hey, are you? Oh. And some of us like are ashamed and it's, well, I'm just a, but it has to do with like what we do. I'm, I'm this and I, or if you're Eastern, it's more of a, where do you come from? What's your family? Even in this passage, all throughout the, the gospels, it's always like Simon, son of, even this, Judas, the way he's described, Judas is the son of Simon Iscariot. Why? Because Eastern people, it's all about where do you come from? Like, what's your family like? What's your background like? So it's either what I've done, which may be good, maybe not, or where you come from, which has a whole slew of history behind that. But John inserts himself into the story to remind us what the gospel says. It's not about what we've done. It's not about where we come from. It's about what does God think of us? The one, I got three hours of sleep, so I get emotional, but whom Jesus loved. Nowhere else but this book will you find out about a God who looks past what you've done, doesn't care about where you came from, but he is willing to write you into the story as the one that he loves. And it's not because anything we've done, it's because Jesus Christ did the work to earn the favor of the Father that we never could. So we could show up with whatever we got going on and lay on Jesus' side. Hey, what's your name? It doesn't matter. I'm just the one Jesus loves. That's a good story to tell. And that's the story of the church. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Father, let us soberly live in the dark, aware that this world is still evil. And the evil is not a strictly out there thing. It exists in our hearts still. And God, let us come to the table, not with a cynicism, but a hopeful expectation to just look at you one more time. And God, I pray for each individual in this room, that even as we sit in this group, this gathering, this congregation, these called out ones, we would sense your personal, intimate, unique love for us. Not because of what we've done, not because where we come from or whatever lineage or resume our background brings, but we sit in this moment as the ones whom Jesus loved. That's it. That's our claim. That's our aspiration in life, to live into that more and more every day. God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus who was betrayed so that us, a room full of betraying like sinners could be welcome to your side. God, we love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray.